Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Calvero Speaks. This is the first episode of 2021. Took a month off, I took December off, so um, I'm back. I wondered whether I should delay this podcast because of the batshit insane things that are going on in our country, America, what with the um, the stupid coup <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, but I just realized that I don't think the crazy shit's going away. I think it's going to keep being crazy. So I've decided to do this anyways for anybody who perhaps needs a break and needs to step away from the stupid coup from the lunatic baby in the White House from the uh, hundreds of thousands of people that are needlessly dying from a pandemic that's mishandled by the stupid government from a potentially milk toast opposition to said government. But uh, that's not what this podcast is about. This is about feelings. It's about music. It's about me. It's about Calvero, it's about you. So um, I'm recording this on Sunday, January 10th. It's my birthday. I'm 33. Very exciting age. That's um, the the year. That's how old Jesus was when he died. That's how old Leonard Cohen was when um, he made his first album. So um, that's 33. What it means to me. Other than that, it doesn't mean much. Um, so I'm planning on releasing this, I suppose, the next day on Monday, but who knows? Maybe, maybe Trump will fucking nuke the Netherlands or something, and then I'll postpone this. But, um, for now, I'm planning on having this out, um, for Monday. And it's good to be back. Good to be back. Thanks for listening to me, uh, once again. Um, thanks for everyone that's been, uh, checking out the past episodes. Um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to get a couple plugs out of the way because I think this is going to be somewhat of a heavy episode. I'm going to be talking about, um, making When I Was Your Love. Um, that's the song that I made and recorded after Vanishing Streets, but, uh, got some other stuff I want to talk about too. But first, um, I did start a Patreon, uh, if you didn't know, um, and I've got a bunch of people that have joined me already, and I'm really grateful for everyone that's been on board and a part of that community. Um, you can join me at uh, patreon.com slash Sings, and I've also got a link for that in my show notes. It's just a, a way for you to uh, support my endeavors, and I try to have bonus content um, every week or so, uh, little writings or playlists. And uh, for the all-access Calvero tier, for the $5 tier, I do have a monthly demo, a monthly songwriting demo that I include just for patrons. And uh, I think I'm going to have it be complimentary um, to the podcast when applicable. So um, so I'm going to have up uh, a dem- the demo that I made on GarageBand for... Uh, when I was your love, and I'm going to be talking about um, writing that and making that demo, so uh, you'll be able to listen to that if you're an all-access Calvero subscriber. So I hope that you'll um, consider joining me on that. Again, that's patreon.com slash Calvero Sings, and um, I'll also leave a link for my show notes. Um, 
Also, I'm still doing uh, songwriting lessons if anyone's interested in some one-on-one remote songwriting lessons, whether you've been doing it for a while and you want to learn a bit more about the craft of pop, or if you're just, uh, you, you maybe you play piano and you want to learn how to write a song at uh, whatever level, um, shoot me an email at imcalvero at gmail.com and I'll leave my address for that. Been really enjoying doing that and I'd, I'd love to do some more. So... Um, other than that, just if you haven't been, oh yeah, I have a newsletter, a newsletter once a month, uh, do a, a nice long piece of writing and some plugs and updates. So um, I'll leave a link in the notes to sign up for that. Um, it's a great way to have just a, a deeper connection than the usual platforms. Um, the usual platforms though, I'm on uh, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, um, I think that's the platforms, right? Facebook, but who the fucking uses Facebook anymore? And unless you're um, trying to storm the Capitol, I think that Facebook is big for those folks. But um, hey, I'm on Facebook too. No, no judgment if you're on there. Um, okay, that wasn't that wasn't too long. That wasn't too long for plugs. So yeah, just check my show notes if it, for, for many different ways you can support by following me, supporting, consuming my stuff um so yeah i did miss doing this podcast but i think i needed a break and um i spent a week or two for the last two weeks of 2020 trying not to work trying to just chill out it's usually a difficult time for me in the year at when things wind down and i do try to unplug and i try to exist outside of being a worker and being a creator and it's sometimes hard for me to um be comfortable in that setting and it was it took some time to um get out of it to stop thinking about my work to stop worrying about shit and um i finally towards the end i got into a good place i listened to a lot of move music watched some movies saw this movie sound of metal uh, which I think was incredibly profound, had a, had a lot of wisdom to it. I got a lot out of it, and I'd recommend everyone check it out. Um, watch Mr. Robot, this whole damn show. I was hooked on that. I kind of expected it to just be an action show and a hacker thriller, and it is those things, but it's deeper than that. It's about isolation and capitalism and how we carry the trauma of our childhood how that morphs and shapes our personalities as adults. It's compelling shit, and it was a pleasant surprise, and it really uh, moved me. And um, it just, like, yeah, I read some books. Uh, this book, Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss. I'm reading this book called Fleischman is in Trouble. Watched The New World, a Terrence Malick film that seems to be kind of like a artful, beautiful retelling of the Pocahontas story, and it's just, like, such stunning filmmaking and what even last night had like kind of a, a little health scare but it, it it seems like things are okay but um it's trying to get my mind on things by just watching watching some movies i watched gone girl for the first time and that was like a fucking trip and uh it's just like feels really good to just be able to lock in and enjoy these pieces of art without always checking my phone or worrying about shit or feeling like I have to be working or solving problems and just taking time to connect with stuff that 
makes me feel human, that makes me feel sad and alive, challenged and whatever. And I think that's just like what it's all about. And I think by the end of 2020, I had be, been so consumed with things that I'd been working on in my own trip and became pretty addicted and <clears throat> dependent on social media, which I think maybe became just like the, um, it became the physical manifestation of, of, um, the ruminations in my head, the mechanisms that, uh, that won't let me be still and always has to check to make things, make sure things are okay to try to protect myself. Um, but it's been nice to shut off those impulses and get back to just like beat in the fucking moment. I know it's a, I know it's a cliche, but, um, I love creating and working on the music, of course, but <clears throat> we just get something instilled in our minds that the way to feel alive is just to grind in this churn of capitalism, in this churn of output, and just trying to grow and just trying to be more and expand because you feel like whatever you're unhappy about or insecure about in your life is because you're not enough, that you're not doing enough. And uh, I heard an interview where someone said that with the social medias I was just talking about, we're all basically entrepreneurs to uphold and grow a personal brand. And so I would go to my phone as a distraction and all this social media shit just became always checking and always worrying am i doing enough why do what do they have that i don't what's wrong with me what can i do to fix this and it just like makes me feel insane and i get so dependent on it and it was nice like i said to just be able to step away and to tap into the things that make me feel human that help me transcend the anxiety of not doing enough of falling behind and i think that's um a big thing I realized that it was so hard for me to sit with a book or a movie and just sit still because I feel like something was wrong with my life, that my life wasn't where I wanted it to be and that I had to just be working to fix it, to protect myself, to make make everything okay. And I guess what I'm learning about myself is that, and I know we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I felt like my happiness or my sense of living a good life is all purely aspirational it's all something that's going to happen to me in the future and that it'll happen when i make a certain amount of money and therefore have a certain level of independence it'll happen when i fall in love again it'll happen when a certain number of people are paying attention to me and listening to me and that i can get more accolades and affirmations from people that i admire and that i put on a pedestal and i, and I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily about wanting those things to happen and doing your best to make them happen but i'm learning that it's wrong to depend on those things to be happier to feel like you're having a good life so i'm just trying to lean into this sense that you know i'm building things i'm building a career i'm building a relationship with my creativity i'm learning how to wrangle in the worst parts of my brain my compulsions my ocd my tendency towards depression and i'm just taking small steps every day to work towards those things and in the meantime i'm good i'm fine and i can live a good life right now it doesn't fucking hang on something happening to me in the future so i'm trying to honor this framing for my life and i hope i can keep it up and i think that what comes from this framing and what comes from accepting this 
you get stillness and you're able to just unplug and you're able to just lock in to a movie or a book or a conversation with a friend because you know that things are going to be okay, that I'm good, that I'm good right now. Um, so as many of you who follow me know, my dear friend and collaborator Max Perenchio died in a tragic accident back in November of last year, so uh, a month or two ago. And for those of you who don't know, he was heavily influenced as a producer and a guitarist for the first five songs I released as Calvero, but he was also one of my best friends, or I considered him to be one of my best friends. And I wrote a tribute to him in my newsletter that I hope you'll read if you haven't already. I'll leave a link for that in the show notes. I talked about how I met him and what he's been for me in my life, how I've carried parts of his personality of boldness and optimism and not overthinking and how I've instilled that in myself for what I call my inner max, which I tap into all the time and will continue to do so. Um, so that's been an unfathomable loss in my life. And my heart goes out to all of his loved ones who are navigating themselves through this loss and this new reality. And and uh, Max, as you know, he particularly if you listen to the last episode about Banishing Streets, was an he was a huge part of my music as Calvero and just a massive influence after years of searching and struggling to find my voice as an artist. He really gave me my eureka moment that I've been building my career on ever since. So I owe a lot to that guy and I love him a lot. And uh, he actually listened to the last episode about Vanishing Streets. I had posted it and tagged him in a post and a few hours later he texted me and said thanks for making me look cool and we caught up and were reliving some of those stories that i talked about on the podcast and i'm just really happy that he was able to listen to me talk about what an impact those sessions had on me and what an impact he's had on me musically and that i was able to again say that to him via text I mean, I used to live a few blocks away from his house in Logan Square and we'd get together and hang out all the time and I, I don't want to jump ahead to whatever narrative I have planned for this podcast, but every, every step of the way, for every self-imposed personal crisis or big decision I was mulling over or whenever I needed someone to talk myself off of a fucking ledge, he just always came through. And you don't have too many people in your life like that who have such a big impact on you and always come through and we'd had a bit of distance the past year or two we weren't we didn't have any conflict or anything i don't think we ever had any conflict or anything serious but he had been bouncing around chicago and was always working and always doing cool shit and having fun and living life and we just didn't have those long phone calls that we used to have on a regular basis and i hadn't seen him in person since 2017 but i'm grateful that we got to have that final conversation where I told him again how much he meant to me. And before he passed, I had also been thinking about how much inf inspiration I got from him um, wh while he was still out there in LA and working with artists and growing as a producer and just fucking hustling and making good shit. The last song he worked on that uh, was released, I I'm sure he has some stuff that people he's worked on so much stuff i'm sure there's still a lot of stuff yet to be released but 
the last song that came out before he passed was this song called Spiritual Violence by uh, singer Annabelle Jones. And I thought it sounded great. And I was listening to it over and over again. And I was so excited because it was just so well made. And I was so proud of him that he was just growing and just like he was just getting better. And I was listening to it over and over again in a week before he passed. I texted him and told him how much I loved it. And we talked again. Um, this was after I texted him about the podcast or he texted me about the podcast and just talking about music, his insecurities, mixing music, that sort of thing. Just talking shop. And, you know, in this podcast, I've talked a lot about how I've been handicapped by fatalism, this sense of doom that nothing is going to go my way, that everything is a sign that I'm just going to fail, that I'm not good enough. And with Max, that shit just never seemed to be an issue. I think coming out of high school or your early 20s where everyone's young and hungry, you wonder, is it going to happen for them? Is it going to fucking work out for them? And what you learn as you get older is that that's the wrong question because it's not about something happening to you. It's about rolling with the fucking punches and just always moving forward. And that was max for me more than I think anyone I knew. It was never a question of, is it going to work out for this guy? Is he just going to get a real job and have to leave this behind? He just fucking made it work. And I talked about this in that uh, newsletter entry, but I watched him go from being in a band that was playing arenas, opening for Kiss and the Smashing Pumpkins, and the band fell apart tragically, and he was back in Chicago starting a band from nothing, playing the same local venues that I was playing at while I had viewed him going out there and I viewed him as the fucking dream. And I mean, I don't know what was completely in his heart, but we were pretty close and he just fucking figured out how to keep living a full life of music and he was never upset about it. He was never, he never seemed bitter to me. He was just like all about moving forward and with his band the Gold Web, he started that playing shows and got a big following and he did guitar lessons and he was in cover bands and then he started producing for other artists and he just kept that forward momentum always. And even if he didn't have the surface level of success that some of his peers might have gotten, he was just living a good life and a life of music and there was no question that he'd just make it happen. And I've been trying to connect to that certainty for myself that there's conversations I've had with friends in desperation after getting rejected from like every publishing company in the world wondering if it was the end of the road and not seeing a way forward and then some of them just said being well-meaning but saying just get a job or go back to college or find something else and I'm finally trying to hammer in that those are my friends decisions that worked for them and that I think were the right choices for them and that I don't look down on, but I know the life that I want and that I'm living it now, even if it feels about as unglamorous as it gets. And I'm just working every day to make that life more sustainable. And I just want to be more like Max to stop letting that be a question to know that I'm just going to make it work. And so, yeah, I'm grateful I've had him as a friend and a mentor and an aspirational figure and a collaborator. And he died in an accident with um, his friend Ryan Brady, who was also a friend of mine. Um, we weren't nearly as close, but he had a pretty big impact on my life as well. 
he was a musician. He played in a band with Max in high school, and he was also a marketing guy, worked at Atlantic Records, climbed the ranks pretty young and pretty fast, and he always answered my emails. He always gave me incredible advice, and he'd always have long phone conversation with me when I was trying to figure shit out, when I was trying to figure out how do you get people to give a shit about your music. And when I ended up in Rhode Island, and we'll get to that part of the narrative, so I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but I, I just didn't know what to do. I had some songs by Tara Jr., who were on Atlantic Records at the time, that were yet to be released, and some other songs by another artist also on Atlantic Records, and I didn't know what steps to take or how to try to jump on that opportunity or who to get in my corner. And um, Ryan was the guy that put me in touch with a really great entertainment lawyer who really helped me feel less alone, like someone was in my corner and, and this lawyer got my shit played by a lot of people. And even though I didn't get a publishing deal out of it, I've just met so many people as a result a&Rs at publishing companies that still listen to my shit, give me feedback, always respond to my emails, set me up with sessions, put me in touch with other writers or producers. So Ryan really opened up a lot of doors for me and he didn't have to. We, we weren't the best of friends. He didn't have to open all my emails and respond to all of them. But he was just a fucking good guy and a warm guy who I think believed in me. And you just really want as many of those people as possible in your life and in your corner. Ryan also gave me some of the best fucking advice anyone has ever given me. When I, I think honestly about any, certainly about um, releasing music, but I'd say just about anything. Um, when I was getting ready to release this music as Calvero, when I had these first five songs re recorded and mixed and mastered and ready to go and was trying to figure out the best way to get them out into the world and to try to get people to give a fuck. I was so obsessed with doing the right rollout, of getting everything right, of checking all the boxes. I hadn't released music in three years and I felt out of the loop and I realized I didn't have any machinery behind me in terms of management or a label. And this was still pre-therapy. So I felt like I had so much to prove and so much was writing on doing this right. And so I'm sending Ryan all these questions. What do you release first, the video or the song? How far apart are the releases? What kind of shit do I post on social media? How often? And he gave me answers of some of the practices that he does with his artists. But then he said, you know, frankly, unless you have an average of like 50,000 people listening to your music, it doesn't fucking matter what you do. Just do what you can the best you can. And I didn't think much of it, but I said... Thanks, man. Just trying to make sure everything looks pro. And he just responded simply, once you let go of that, you'll truly bloom. And I was embarrassed that I even said that. I, I, I just meant I want to do it right. But in the two plus years that I've been releasing and promoting my music, I just keep finding how true his statement was. You know, I think the notion of a pop star being an artist or a celebrity is so much attached to it of being infallible, being unattainable, being above everyone else, being aspirational, being fucking flawless. And when I first started releasing music, I was just looking at artists that already had big fan bases who, if they want, can just post a cool picture and get engagement. And I th thought I'd just do that because I'm doing what, you know, those people do. But 
but I'm going to table this for another episode because there's a lot I can say about that. But I've certainly been learning as I've been putting myself out there to let go of this need for perfection and calculation at all times and to be ruled by fear of how I'm perceived. And I'm learning to embrace my flaws and be myself. And that certainly opened the door for doing this podcast, which who the people that are listening seem to enjoy and appreciate. And it's opened the door for me being more open on social media. And I've, I've actually found this element to be one of the most gratifying parts of this whole musical project, a way to give some more depth and backstory to these songs that I've been releasing. And it's just really nice to let go of that fear of doing it right and being pro and, and needing everything to have this sheen of professionalism and, uh, and just like perfection and being okay with being messy and imperfect and fucking real. And Max was another guy who called me when I first started releasing music as Calvero and was imploring me to do more on the social media side or be some sort of front-facing personality beyond the songs and the music videos. And I was just really hesitant and I was still kind of scarred from feeling like when I wasn't releasing music and was posting so much on my personal Facebook that I was afraid of that defining me and I didn't want all the other shit to get in the way to overshadow it, but... That's just not how things work these days. And I I remember on that phone call, Max had said that by being afraid to post and do shit beyond the most basic song promotion stuff, it was like I was sword fighting with one hand. I think that's how he put it. Or with, uh, with, I'm sword fighting with one hand at the, in my back or something. I forget. But he was right and Ryan was right. And as I've been letting go of that need for perfection and polish and professionalism, I've, felt like I've been blooming, not numbers-wise, but certainly comfort-wise and in the connections that I feel I'm able to make with who's paying attention. So yeah, I lost two people who both made a big impact on me. And it's incredibly tragic and it's incredibly sad and I'll be dealing with this and remembering them and conjuring up their listens that they gave me for the rest of my life, I'm sure. I'm just grateful that I had such warm and smart and beautiful guys in my life who believed in me. I know they meant the same, if not more, to many other people. So it's just a fucking massive loss. But I do want to shift and talk about the next song I made after Vanishing Streets called When I Was Your Love, which features vocals from the great Chicago band Ohm. Just like Vanishing Streets, I made this one with Max in his basement in Logan Square a few blocks from my place a month or two after we finished Vanishing Streets. And I was so invigorated with the creative success that Vanishing Streets felt like and the resoundingly positive response that I was getting from friends telling me they were listening to it over and over. And I was just thinking about why that one worked and the others didn't beyond the strength of the song itself and and the crazy shit, the harmonized electric guitars and the big choir. What else was there in the substance of that? And I realized that the demos and the studio tracks that I had made before in the search for my solo project, I was really trying to fit in with what was on the radio in 2015. And I didn't have the production foresight to do that. And it also just didn't really fit me. With Vanishing Streets through the direction of Max, we threw that away 
And Max had always said, you know, like I was trying to maybe be like Justin Bieber. I was trying to fit into this pretty boy mold of pop when there is kind of like this big over the top, I guess you could call it masculine energy that was just like chomping at the bit to come out. And so we bypassed the aesthetics of the Hot 100 in 2015 and just chase that 80s big bombast and I, I don't think that it's a completely retro song or a piece of pastiche as some people have criticized it as but you know I do think the drums and the effects give it some anchor in the present but it's definitely unmistakable what the intent was which was what Max had said I mentioned this in the last episode he said we don't want to give anyone any question as to what they're getting into and so moving forward to work on the next song, I just figured I'd lean into that 80s aesthetic since it really seemed to be working and it felt like it fit like a glove and it fit my energy and my voice and I was really enthusiastic about 80s pop. A lot of my favorite albums of all time, like Hounds of Love by Kate Bush, Songs from the Big Chair by Tears for Fears, Diamond Life, Promise, Stronger Than Pride by Sade, Bluebell Knoll by Cocteau Twins, Purple Rain, come on. All from the 80s. And so I was excited to chase this and move forward. And I think this is actually the last song I wrote that was released where I wrote the song simultaneously while making a demo arrangement of the song on GarageBand. And again, um, if you skip through the plugs, if you're a all-access patron for Calvero on um, on Patreon, patreon.com slash Sings. I have the uh, the demo, the writing demo of When I Was Your Love up there right now, so you can check that out. So the way I made Vanishing Streets with Max, as I described in the last episode, was that I fully arranged it on GarageBand. I had heard that St. Vincent had done something similar, showed up at Max's house, and we just took each track, and he dialed in the sounds, and he helped me decide what did need to be there, what could be enhanced, what could be cooler, what could be better. And I really like that method because even though I didn't have the chops to use Pro Tools or use those plugins, and I didn't understand the concepts of EQ or compression or width or depth, I still had a very prepared starting point for the studio sessions where we could just go and we didn't have to waste any time. And I've, of course, um, if you've been listening to the pod, you know I've made that transition from being the engineer and the producer for myself. And a lot of that came from being able to watch Max work and watch John, my previous studio mentor, work. But there is, I'm realizing a lot that I miss about studio time where you have a day or a couple of days and you just gotta get shit done and you can't really be too precious. You gotta just go, go, go. And for me now, engineering and producing in my bedroom where there's no hard deadlines, there's beyond the people who are paying attention, there's no one who's demanding that I get this done other than me. I pretty much answer to myself and the people who are paying attention. And uh, it's just so easy to fucking chill out and take my time and get distracted and go down stupid rabbit holes and... Which I, I do think rabbit holes are important to some extent, but I love self-producing and self-engineering, but I do think I probably need to get back into the mindset of 
This is studio time. This is what we got to get done today. Anyways, I digress. While setting up the vibe for the song, before I even started writing, I had a pretty clear idea of what I wanted. First off, uh, for those few years of finding a brand new love and appreciation for pop music, I had around that time become particularly obsessed with Nothing Compares to You, particularly the Sinead O'Connor version, um, although Prince's version... Prince's versions were amazing too. There's like the live version and then later they they released the demo, which you can hear on Spotify, which sounds fucking awesome. Um, but it's the Sinead O'Connor version and particularly along with the music video is is really what fucking gets me going. And it's just like the lyrics, it just has such powerful imagery and every line or every other line is this incredibly visceral scene. You can see Sinead going to the doctor, trying to get answers, going to a fancy restaurant all by herself. Sometimes she's just fucking crying. Sometimes you're just living through her heartbreak in real time. And and as she's working through it and all those actions are circling around the gravity of the song's declaration, nothing compares to you. And I've always found this as the best gold standard for myself as a writer just because it's so fucking real, it's so gut-wrenching, it's so moment-to-moment and and personal. And then that chorus, it's just that line, nothing compares to you. And for those of us listeners, we've all felt that and, and about someone at some point in their life, and there's just no pretension. It's almost like diary entries. And that's like something, you know, when I talk, when I think about how I write for myself or when I talk to some of my songwriting students, I do think that songwriting is a great chance to express yourself in ways that you'd be too fucking embarrassed to in real life, to that you'd be too embarrassed to say out loud or say to anyone because songs are like, they're heightened versions of how we feel. And I just think that nothing compares to you just does that in the most elegant in fucking real way. And so I wanted to write kind of my own version of this song or, or to just like really, really be inspired by that. And I, I talked a good deal about Vanishing Street's lyrics in the last episode, uh, which I, I think is a love song in a certain sense, but it's mostly a song about trying to triumph above the darkest corners of your brain. And that's been a very real struggle in my life. But I'm also a fucking sucker for a good heartbreak song, a good breakup song. And so I made this little beat on GarageBand and I was thinking Prince, like classic Purple Rain Prince for the vibe. And I was also thinking something from a John Hughes soundtrack, like Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me. And I talked a bit on earlier episodes that I was in a relationship in 2014 and it was short, uh, lasted about six months and I got my heart broken. And uh, so I'm sitting there two years later And I had this idea for a song about, you know, you break up with someone who hurt you and all of the memories, good or bad, are tarnished by that hurt. And every memento or photograph just fills you with reminders of the worst times and the worst parts of that relationship. And as time goes on, you in the process of moving on, you just run through everything and it all becomes so tainted and mythologized. And that's what I was trying to say with those words, 
all that I was for you it all meant nothing when I walked away. And memories pass through the days till I hate you at the sound of your name. And so I had the idea of having the chorus completely counteract that by imagining what would happen if I saw my ex, uh, who I hadn't seen since we'd broken up, and I wondered if maybe all of that anger and hurt that maybe are just protective armor we put on ourselves to cope and to move forward. If all that had been instilled in me and twisted and morphed with rumination and wounded pride, if it would just go away if I saw her again, and if just seeing her would remind me of the best times of why I was with her and why I loved her, and it felt <laughs> kind of like a very Fleetwood Mac premise. So this is going to sound like I'm bullshitting, but as I was writing the song, and I didn't write it all in one day. It was just a little bit every day, work on the melody, get some lyrics, work on the production arrangement. In the middle of the writing process, I went to a show with The Hungry Brain. It's a small little club in Chicago to see some friends playing. And I see my ex, who I'm writing this song about. I see her walk through the door, my first time seeing her in two years, while I had literally been writing a song imagining this scenario hours before. And what's more <laughs> is I realized that uh, I was wearing a shirt, a red and black flannel shirt that was hers that I had borrowed at some point and never gave it back. And I was with some mutual friends that she knew and she knew that we uh, did not end on great terms and that I had made it clear that I wanted distance and I didn't want contact. So she just looked at me and said, nice shirt. And that was pretty much it. And it was very surreal. We might have talked a little bit afterwards. And I left abruptly and maybe that encounter was healing in a way. Just a reminder that she's still out there living her life, moving on. And so have I. And that's okay. And seeing her, time just helped lighten that blow. And it, it felt like getting back to finishing this song was really a way of letting things go. Really accepting that that relationship was something from the past. So yeah, I was writing this song and simultaneously working on the project and the envisioning the production. And I also really wanted to dig into this vibe of like the Twin Peaks soundtrack and uh, particularly this album called Floating Into the Night by Julie Cruz, which was all written by David Lynch and produced and composed by Angelo Badalamente. Am I pronouncing it right? Don't don't uh please don't kill my mentions italian twitter but um it was just the best fucking vibe tons of layers of these dreamy verbed out strings and synths pitchy woozy chorusy and my vision was to have these aesthetics but for the chorus to suck into more of a sparse modern dance pop track and to have that um ooh, 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 ooh. sorry i haven't warmed up but that uh that hook that comes after the chorus to kind of ground it in the present and um, to kind of put it in the same space as the stuff I've been really liking that uh, my buddy David Singer Vine had been working on with Kiara and, and Tara Jr. And so, um, yeah, I was... Wh where am I? I lost my fucking train of thought. No edits, folks. No edits. That's uh, This is the real shit. Um... So yeah, this was exciting for me because it felt like a really exciting way to use my older influences and to try to anchor that in the present, which is always a goal of mine, which I think I execute on uh, varying degrees of success, but it's always an aspiration. 
it's always an aspiration. Um, I heard, uh, I mentioned I listened to this guy, Devin Townsend's podcast, who's like just like a crazy prog metal guy and every album sounds so different. Um, but he had said something, because he likes Enya and um, he likes New Age and a bunch of just like crazy shit that has nothing to do with <clears throat> metal or prog or any of that stuff necessarily. Um, but he had said that he... His goal was always to do, fuse his myriad of bizarre and questionable interests and and, uh, writing styles and influences and try to give it that commercial sheen so that it can fit alongside some more popular mainstream music but it's with his bizarre and completely singular imprint. And, And I think that that's that feels pretty close to my mission statement for myself um so yeah maybe it'll change it's okay nothing's nothing's concrete so as i was working on this song and writing this song and kind of building the production ideas i was a really big fan of this local chicago group called at the time home i'm not pronouncing that right h-o-m-m-e um, who have since changed their name to Ohm and are very well regarded globally now, um, and uh, rightly so. And I was just blown away by their live shows. Uh, Seema, <clears throat> Cunningham, and Macy Stewart, they're the two members, the two principal songwriters and singers. But while I had been working on this song and really digging into my obsession with that Julie Cruz video... Um, Ohm had released a video of them covering this song called Rockin' Inside My Heart, which is a song from that Julie Cruz album. And and I just had a light bulb switch because their voices sounded so fucking perfect for that vibe. And I really, I'm always looking for ways or excuses to be able to work with people who I really admire. And I realized that it could really enhance the song to turn it into a duet of sorts so that it's not just my perspective, but the perspective from the other side. Two people outliving their lives and going through the same thing for themselves in their own way. So yeah, lucky for me, they agreed to do it and we tracked all the vocals in a few hours in Max's basement. It was really fun and really exciting and me and Max finished the track pretty quickly after that because there's not a ton of stuff going on in it. We definitely made sure that the strings that come in it that come in at the beginning were modeled after the Sinead O'Connor version of Nothing Compares to You, and we got a lots of nice dreamy synths to get us in that Julie Cruz sort of realm. And I think maybe my favorite production thing is in the bridge. While I'm singing the lead, the there's these weird pitch vocals of of Macy and Seema in the background, and I was trying to get that shit to sound like this song called Souvenir by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. It's a song I was really obsessed with around that time. I, I saw this Noah Baumbach, uh, Greta Gerwig movie called Mistress America. And it just made me feel really emotional. And it, it sounded so modern. And, and I thought it was like the Chromatics or something, like a newer group. But I looked it up and it's this song from fucking 1983. 
And it's just this vocal that sounds kind of like a synth or a sample, and it's really verbed out and woozy and shimmery, and I really wanted to get that sound for this track. And if I remember right, what we did was we had Seema and Macy sing these long-held notes, and I think we just had them sing one note, just one one random note that fit the chord, and then we used this plug-in called Little Alter Boy to manipulate each note. So it would fit the chord, and we fucked with the, the formant, uh, so it sounded kind of alien, and then we gave it a shitload of reverb, then we reversed each note, and then gave that shit some chorus and delay, and I'm just really proud of how that shit turned out. It's one of my proudest production moments, and it was really exciting to be in the back seat with, with Max as he dialed all that shit in. Because I think that's like, it's so important, even if you're paying for studio time, like there has to be a level of experimentation. You can't just like have a fucking checklist and dial it all down. That's like, that's just safe. That's just being safe. I mean, so, so much of like the, the best Radiohead shit, it's just them fucking like messing around, you know, just like that. I mean, that's like the whole, so if you ever read, um, the, that book by Jeff Emmerich about, um, recording the Beatles um like I think he started in rubber solar revolver so around the time that the Beatles were known to be just like sonically revolutionary a lot of a lot of the reason that their production was so revolutionary was just because they were the most famous band in the world they had unlimited money and so they could do whatever the fuck they wanted and at that time in the EMI studios or whatever these people had like lab coats on, like white lab coats on, and they had to follow this strict protocol for recording. But the Beatles were just like, nah, we're going to put a fucking condom on top of a uh, microphone and put it underwater. And you can't say no because we're the fucking Beatles. So it was just like, really, they had that leverage to do whatever the fuck they wanted. And uh, yeah, that's like, I think what some of the most interesting, astounding stuff comes from is even under the pressure of studio time or trying to get something done. It's just like the rabbit holes, you know, just trying shit out, trying something new. Um, so the other thing that really stuck with me from these sessions was that in my demo, in the chorus where things get all dancey and shit, uh, the only thing going on in the demo was the drums and the bass and, and because I wanted it to be sparse and I wanted the vocals to really fill up that space. Uh, but at the end of that first session or second session after we had dialed in all my parts from the demo and got all the vocals going, um, the, the part, the chorus just didn't feel right. Like it felt awkward coming out of the verses because it was so sparse compared to the... Um, the verse and the pre-chorus which had all their strings and synths and everything so it was a bit of a head scratcher we left it at that and when i came back for the next session max had added some shit that just made everything fucking work and this was i had been uncomfortable with having anyone try shit on their own without me being there because i am like a bit of a control freak so this was like really big for me to have this trust to see that sometimes you just have to let people you have to leave people to their own devices to just like try shit out on their own without you sitting there <laughs> breathing behind their neck or whatever. So yeah, he made some extra shit. He just made it fucking work. And he walked me through what he had done. He had been listening to some, uh, some Justin Bieber shit that was popular right around that time. Uh, maybe like a year earlier, like that song, Sorry. 
And he had noticed that a lot of time when there's still stuff going on where the chorus is very drum and bass heavy, they still have something like a keyboard or a synth or a, a musical element playing the chords in the background, but tucked away back in the mix with a lot of the higher frequencies rolled off. I didn't have the fucking ear to pick up on this shit at that point. Um, just so you can feel it, but it's not taking up space. And he had listened to some songs off that Haim record, um, Days Are Gone, and he noticed that a lot of times they would add cymbals and other nice little top-end percussive elements to complement the stare and the kick, just to add depth and excitement and to just, like, fill the whole sonic spectrum. And, uh, yeah, those subtle little changes just made everything fucking work, and, and that really taught me how to be a listener on such a detail-oriented level for production that if you're having an issue, there's ways that you can listen for solutions and figure out how to make it work for yourself. And at that point, as a producer, I was thinking more about big picture stuff, the vibe, what songs I wanted to reference, what sort of cool and interesting sounds I wanted to try to figure out. But that really taught me like the devil's in the detail. And that's something to this day I really carry with me. And, and by the time I was set up with Pro Tools and some plugins and set out to do You Were the Only One by myself a year later, as I'll talk about um, in the coming episodes, it was incredibly valuable to have seen how he works so that I could do similar shit for myself. So look, we finished. It felt great. I'd spent a few years, as I mentioned, being very fragile and lost and self-conscious and the fact that we followed up Vanishing Streets with this one that I sent to friends and got maybe even a better reaction. Tim, who ended up mixing it, was very enthusiastic. I sent it to Macy and Seema. I was a little nervous. <laughs> and they sent me back a video of them dancing to the rough mix. And Max was telling me how great it turned out and how great the vocals sounded and how these were the best songs I'd written. And it was just such a relief and such an empowering feeling to know that I had tapped into something, that I was moving forward. That Vanishing Streets wasn't a fluke, that I had all these people in my corner that were not just hired guns, but were meaningful people in my life who were helping me get there. So let's leave this on a positive note, the next part of the narrative, which I've hinted at for some time. If I choose to do that for the next episode, if I choose to continue the narrative, it'll be pretty heavy. It'll be about the beginning of my mental health crisis, having to leave Chicago. Um, so we'll get to that. But for now, it's nice to talk about the wonderful process of making music with friends and this one goes out to the memory of Max and Ryan. Hope you are all out there taking care of yourselves. And I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.